Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Good to have you here. Today's episode is really driven by personal curiosity. I've had some interesting discussions over the course of the last few weeks. I've been chatting to more and more organisations who've been either experimenting with hybrid work and they've expressed a dawning realisation that it isn't going to work or have reached an epiphany that they've looked two years down the road and said, actually, we'd much rather do something radical now rather than wait for it to happen to us. So I guess to, to go into the details of that, why might firms say that hybrid work isn't working for them? Well, the, the firms I've spoken to uh, have often been united and look, and I've spoken to probably in the, the last month 40 different organisations from a whole range of different sectors. And the firms I've spoken to generally are united in saying that when they first go back to the office, there's a thrill of excitement, there's a moment of reconnection. Actually, there's a lot of laughter, there's a lot of people getting back together. And then very quickly, people have gone into their task-oriented mode, which has been fixated on trying to get their meetings and calls done. Now, there have been some firms who've who've said we're only doing face-to-face meetings, but they seem to be the exception. So you've immediately got this situation where firms are uh, filled with people trying to find meeting rooms to have video calls. Now, presumably, the one thing that we do all agree on is, firstly, that hybrid meetings aren't very effective. And secondly, that trying to do a video call from... The office is often significantly worse than doing a video call from home, uh, largely because if you're all dialing in remotely, unless you've got phone booth style meeting rooms, it's not very easy to do. Anyway, so in the context of that, I've been really intrigued that a few firms have come to me and said, look, we're actually going to do something a bit more radical than this. We're going to go fully remote. And to understand a little bit of that, I wanted to understand uh, how the firms that had gone fully remote had done it. I put out a note on LinkedIn. I put out a note on Twitter. And you can uh, you can connect with me on either. Um, LinkedIn, you'll find me at Bruce Daisley. And Twitter, you'll... Uh, the, the, the Twitter for the podcast is Eat Sleep. If you search Eat Sleep Work Repeat, you'll find it. Uh, I put those notes out. 
and had some discussions with various people in, in different sectors. Now, there is an interesting bias that I recognised halfway through. So I spoke to someone from Harpin, someone from ThinScale, a company called Catalog, uh, an organisation called Your Flock. And I realised at that point, in fact, th- all of these were firms that in some way were enhancing the remote working experience. I also spoke to someone from Blood Cancer UK. So I'll give a shout out to, to all of the guests both in the show notes and as we go through, I'll introduce them properly. But just uh, an important caveat there. A a good, different, uh, diverse mix of of contributors. I think what the things I was really interested in were some of the hygiene factors. How do they manage meetings? What are their attitudes towards asynchronous work? What are their attitudes towards recruiting? How do they reflect about getting together face-to-face? These are, thing, I think, the, the intriguing differences um, and the, the intriguing decisions that firms are making. I also wanted to understand some of the specifics. Do they run this on Teams, on Slack? Do they run it on, um, do they run it on, on project boards? What software are they actually using to facilitate it? I think you're going to find on the software that a lot of it is just using the stuff that we already use in the office and using it remotely. But it will just give you... I think an interesting snapshot of where we currently are on the remote working debate and what some different organisations are wrestling with and, and debating doing. If you like this, I think you'd love to sign up to the newsletter that I do on a weekly basis. It goes to thousands of people, um, generally goes, I guess, on a fortnightly basis right now, but is... Um, gives the the latest articles and news about workplace culture and how these things are evolving. You can find that at the website, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Okay, let's jump in. Camilla Boyer works at the events platform Hop In, and they are fully remote. She talked to me about it. My name is Camilla Boyer. I'm the head of internal comms and culture for Hop In. I joined in January of 2020, And we were 250 people at the time. We are now about a thousand people, which is a scale of growth only made possible by the fact that we are fully remote. So for those that don't know, Hopin is a virtual events and hybrid events platform. So we started out basically replicating all the facets of a, of a conference world online, which obviously was in huge demand during the pandemic. Um, but we've moved now more into hybrid and physical events as well as the world has gone that direction. So lots of evolution going on. I sit on a team called the Vibe Team, which reports to our CEO's chief of staff. And the Vibe Team kind of has two branches. So there's my branch, which is internal comms and culture. And then there's the branch headed by our head of remote. Camilla explained to me that they see big differences in the motivations for firms going remote. Remote first, which is what we are, versus remote forced, which is what basically all these other companies are. Just the idea that they were forced into remote life and they're kind of still resisting it and still fighting against it, which means, of course, you're never going to get the systems and the infrastructure quite quite right because you're not really invested in it. It, You're you're just kind of like trying to tide yourself over until you are able to return to some past way of working that might never actually return. So I feel very lucky that because we're doing it with intention, that's why it works. And and the problem is like a lot of other companies are doing it as like a backup choice, a backup option. And and that's what makes it difficult. I asked Camilla to give me a sense of what this vibe team actually does. 
our job on the Vibe team is basically to make culture and work processes for a fully remote team work as seamlessly as possible. So we do all of that work in tandem. When you think about the work that Head of Remote does, it ties very closely to how are you communicating internally? And this is something that we think about in tandem. So what are the workflows that we're using? What tools are we using to communicate? How heavily are we leaning into asynchronous processes? And what are we doing to basically make it as not just easy, but effective as possible for people across different time zones, working in their houses flexibly to work collaboratively and efficiently. Camilla mentioned different time zones there, and it raises the question of of asynchronous work. We hear about this idea of switching to asynchronous work, where people can do the work they need to do at whatever time that suits them best. Switching from working as meetings into working in documents. I was interested, how much of the hopping work is asynchronous? How much is people working independently of each other? I don't think asynchronous work is exclusive from synchronous work. Our philosophy is that you should have a healthy balance of both. We think asynchronous work is really important to being able to move projects along in the absence of meetings. And we're looking to reduce the over-dependence on meetings. But we also think that having those in-person uh, touch points physically in person, but also like virtual meetings are a really important part of the process too. So our philosophy on asynchronous is basically we want to get everyone comfortable with it. Not only we want to, but we have to because people are in every different time zone across the world. So it might not work. You don't want to be waiting for that meeting moment to be able to move projects forward. And it's about coming up with the right tools and processes to make sure that everyone has the information that they need to move projects along independent of meetings and then making sure that the meetings that you do have actually serve a purpose and are and are really efficient. Prior to hopping, Camilla's worked at huge companies like Salesforce and Twitter, really taking a lead on culture. And often that's taken the form of running big in-person events. I want to know what does her job look like now? So that's still my job. I still do that at Hopin, um, but we do it virtually and we do it on Hopin. So I don't know how familiar you are with Hopin, but we always get told that our internal meetings, our all hands meetings are more like a TV show than they are like a meeting because the platform has a lot of different features that allow you to replicate that energy and that connection that you get from an in-person event. And as you know, I've loved doing those events in the past and I would really struggle to create that same moment if if I didn't feel like we could replicate that kind of level of connections. We do still do that. And it's about making sure that you are giving people the opportunity to have conversations, to interact rather than just be sitting there passively viewing things, which is what it can feel like when you have like more of a webinar type situation. And Hopin helps us get around a lot of those things. And aside from virtual events, the organisation has just started to take its first steps into getting its team together face to face. She explained to me what that looks like. We have just started doing our first in-person programming, actually, um, which is called Hop and Hangouts. Um, and basically, in any city where we have more than three Hoppineers, people can get together and there's, you know, company stipend for it. They can organize an event to get together. So I just went to the London Hop and Hangout a couple of weeks ago, 70 Hoppineers together in London who had never met each other before. And it was like meeting a group of celebrities because I knew who all these people were from seeing them on a screen. 
screen and then seeing them in real life is kind of like I felt a bit starstruck so it was really cool and I'm in New York this week and I'm going to the hop and hang out on Thursday here just lucky timing that I happen to be here so I get to meet a bunch of New York hoppers too and I think anyone would tell you this our CEO would tell you this our head of remote would tell you this there's no replacing that in person moment and even fully remote companies still need that touch point it's kind of like you have like a reservoir of energy and that moment of being in person kind of helps you fill back up and sustains you to have a really successful fully remote journey and you know i can say having met some of the some of the hoppers in london for the first time last week that I built some bridges that I otherwise wouldn't have built because I would never have made the time to intentionally sit down and have a scheduled video call with that person but those relationships have already proved to be really valuable so I think the role of in person doesn't go away whether you're fully remote or not with that shout out to the power of face to face working Camilla was at pains to point out to me that day to day work hasn't felt lonelier for her I wanted to get into the specifics what sort of software do they use what do they run their company on So Slack is our office. We live and die by Slack. Um, We use it for synchronous and asynchronous communication. um, And we've worked pretty closely with some folks at Slack to get that set up. It's not perfect. Slack is always a bit messy, but um, we do kind of make that work pretty well for us. Um, In addition to that, we have um, a tool called Guru, which is like our internal wiki Um, that is actually really helpful for finding and sharing information, makes it a lot easier to do asynchronous work. You know, we use Google Docs and all that kind of thing, but we have some systems like, uh, for example, when you do have a meeting, we are rolling out a system called PEOS, which stands for uh, Purpose, Action and Outcome. And every calendar invite has to have a PEO attached to it because just by nature of writing a payo, you force the organizer to think through, do I really need to have this meeting? And um, can I actually set actionable goals for what we're going to accomplish in this meeting? Um, and so things like that serve as a forcing function to get people to use their synchronous communication really valuably, really impactfully, and use asynchronous tools like Google Doc or Guru or things like that um, if, they, if, they don't, if they can. I want to know specifically whether the question of accountability had come up. Were they anxious about trying to prove that people were doing their jobs? What was the company's philosophy on that aspect of remote working? I think that's a narrative that I've heard a lot and I just think is basically completely bogus. We have more of a problem with getting people to stop working than people not working enough. Because when you don't have those guardrails of having to get up and leave your desk and get on the train to get home, it's much easier to just keep working. And especially when you have people in different time zones, there's never really a point that like slack gets quiet. You know, you could just carry on working. So really the the struggle that we face is getting people to, to be accountable um, in terms of switching off and managing their own time that way. So we never worry about people not doing enough work at home. We worry about them doing too much. Obviously, recruitment is one of the things that we feel most comfortable doing face-to-face. How much has Camilla recruited virtually? Oh, tons. Well, I've hired you know my team exclusively through video calls and you know, we've got open headcount all the time and I've been part of other recruitment processes um, across the company. So it's, uh, it's really interesting, but I, you know, I'm just meeting this week, some colleagues for the first time in New York 
And it's like we're old friends. It's, it's such a weird thing the first time that you meet someone that you have had this, you know, you talk to them every day, you have this fairly intense, you know, relationship for, for nine months. And you think, oh, when I meet them in person, it's going to feel really different. And it just doesn't. It just feels like, you know, we're friends and we really know each other well and we can talk to each other very candidly. And it's actually really validating to see that those relationships that you developed in a fully virtual world translate perfectly into a physical world. The one thing that I was especially interested in is Camilla's role is responsible for culture. And we associate culture so much with being around each other in the office and, and taking the temperature of, of how people are feeling. So I wanted to know how her job had become different in this remote first world. In my space, um, when it comes to building culture and fostering you know, great work environments, I actually love being fully remote. There's a much more deliberate approach to this work than there is in physical environments because in physical environments, it's much easier to just assume that stuff will happen and that culture is just, you know, the writing on the wall or what happens when nobody's looking and, you know, how people talk to each other in meeting rooms where in this world, we have to be much more intentional about it. And the same thing goes for a head of remote role. You have to be much more intentional about how you are managing your work flows and the insight that you have into your work processes. So I feel much more valuable in this world than I, than I did in a physical world. And I think companies that are looking at being fully remote or at least remote first need to be aware that they need to just be much more intentional about how they are managing their workflows and how they're building their culture, because you can't just assume that these things are going to happen the way that you do in a physical world. One of the critical things that Camilla mentioned is the challenges of trying to merge real life and remote working, the challenge of hybrid meetings. That setup where there's three people in a conference room talking to three more people on VC is really bad and disjointed. And so, yeah, to go into the office just to be talking to people on VC and half the people are there and half the people are not there, I think is going to end up actually being a worse experience than if everyone was just fully remote, you know. And we actually kind of make a point of sitting in separate rooms, even when we are physically together, just to recreate that experience of like everyone, you know, equality, basically the experience is the same for everyone. So I do think that's something that hybrid companies are going to increasingly come across is, is, is the equality of experience for the people who are in and out of the office. Next, I had a conversation with Andrew McNeil. Now, Andrew works at one of these companies who really had a, an exceptional time of things during the pandemic, really servicing needs that have just become far more prevalent. He works at an organisation called ThinScale, and he explained a little bit about it. What we do is supply secure remote working technology, primarily for the outsourcing companies, the big people like Teleperformance, who have 370,000 employees around the globe. Many of the big uh, tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, outsource large numbers of their employees to these outsourcing companies. Many of those people in turn are working at home. And during the pandemic, they had to move thousands of them at home. And quite often, the logistics around using corporate devices became extremely complex and with product ship shortages and so on. And so finding a way to secure people's personal PCs so that they could work on these corporate resources was a critical requirement. And we supply the software for that for all of the biggest BPOs. Worth saying that ThinScale are on their own journey here. They started the pandemic with an office. 
We did. We had an office. We were 15 people in a sort of incubation set up in a third level institution. And then when this hit, we thought, well, A, we should be doing what we're talking about anyway. And number, and number two, we didn't have a choice. We just all had to go home. So we just got rid of the office. And then we've grown massively. So we're now 55 odd people. We could never fit back into the office anyway. And we've recruited them all over Ireland, all over the UK, all over the US. So we're now scattered around the world. I'm really intrigued in capturing the moment in these firms who have a head of remote and ThinScale have one. So I asked, what did their head of remote actually do? She is responsible for sort of everything that goes together with the culture of remote. Operationally, that means ensuring that everybody has the right equipment from day one. Administratively, making sure that there are appropriate onboarding plans. I think one of the things in making it work well is the quality of the execution of onboarding for people who are starting. Is there a good system, a good plan, a good meeting place, a good setup of schedules? So the day that they get in, they're meeting people and getting to know people. So she's helping with all of that aspect. But also there's a whole cultural aspect to it, to making people feel welcomed and wanted and so on. And so she does quite a bit of those things, the sort of nice things, you know, making sure there are goodie bags that come out when we're doing a a corporate lunch or a sort of teas and coffees and croissants of the odd day, making sure that people get cakes on on their birthday. So whether you're in Vienna or Texas or anywhere, you get a cake on your birthday. It's those HRE related things that you might have in the HR department if it was in a call center, but actually it needs to be really thought through from a remote point of view. ThinScale are, like a lot of firms, planning their first in-person get-together since the pandemic. And Andrew gave me a perspective of what sort of thing the head of culture focuses on. Interestingly, because I'm on the sort of sales and marketing side and we're always results-oriented, you know, we feel like we should be doing something very professional and having planning sessions and cheer up sessions around the focus in terms of, you know, where we're going, what we're doing. Both the CEO and this lady who runs um, work at home feels actually, no, it's all about building community. So they don't want to do any worky stuff, but it's all about gathering together, relationship uh, and that kind of stuff that they want to do things around. I'm sure we'll do one kind of presentation piece. But I think they're both quite right, because if the relationships are right, because you're operating in a high trust environment, you've got to be able to create high trust or the thing doesn't work. Andrew said one of the things that really has changed is the recruitment process is a bit longer when you're trying to do things remotely. I also asked him what the philosophy about meetings was. So we've only built those meetings that we feel are necessary. Think carefully about the purpose of the meeting, get people's feedback about whether it's meeting that purpose and how they're finding the meeting. So one critical meeting I have is with all of my sales and marketing team, which is about 30 people. And so I've just just did that process recently over, over Teams and articulated what I perceived the reasons for it, broke them into groups of uh, into small groups of, of four and got them to chat together and reflect together and then tell me how did they rate the meeting and and so on. So I think that sort of evaluation process of meetings is too inadequately done. We were fortunate that we had only a few of those kinds of meetings in place, so we didn't carry a great burden through, and we haven't expanded that. 
One of the things we are hearing right now is people's life circumstances have changed in the last two years and they're often feeling reluctant to go back to the office because they've either got a dog or they've moved. Lewis mentioned that he'd heard similar. I had one guy going, can I just confirm you are not expecting me to come back into the office? I'm going, I don't have an office for you to come back into. Next up, I chatted to Lewis Clark, and he's working at an interesting new startup called Catalog. Lewis spent 10 years working at the payment company Stripe. There's something in the shared experience of a lot of web companies that Catalog was set up to, to emulate. So there's something about how they can build a sophisticated infrastructure that seems to be the backbone of successful startups. But I think what's interesting about Stripe was that they invested quite heavily in this product called Stripe Home which is basically their own internal tool to bring everyone together on the same page for company updates, for alignment, for a directory and stuff like that. I saw Stripe like invest quite a lot of research in that and I saw that become very popular and I've seen other companies like um, Shopify, like they use a, com- a product called Shopify Vault, which they built internally themselves. These are companies with like deep engineering resources and it's like, why, why can't other companies benefit from this kind of innovation? Um, and make this kind of stuff accessible to any company who's looking to sort of bring their distributed team together. Catalog aren't fully remote. Lewis himself works in the office on Thursdays, but they do recognise some of the challenges that hybrid working have to play. And, and their opinion very much is that the more that you can plan, the fewer problems you're going to have. The challenge with hybrid work from our perspective is is it does threaten to amplify a lot of the chaos that we see already in distributed teams. So already in distributed teams, we did we conducted some research which says that six in ten people say it's hard to know what what their colleagues are working on. Forty-three percent people spend too much time switching between apps, and people waste about typically waste about an hour every day trying to find information hidden within apps. That's the status quo in the remote setting. Bringing in hybrid into that. The risk there is that you introduce more silos and more boundaries between the physical and the digital, right? And there's already quite a lot of boundaries between your apps and your people and your projects already. Hybrid just threatens to complicate that. A lot of people can have looked at hybrid as a bit of a, a silver bullet for a lot of the, the remote challenges that they had. But sleepwalking into it without a plan is, in my personal opinion, highly dangerous. Similar to what Camilla said, the importance of face-to-face can't be underestimated. And Louis says that Catalog are just planning their first in-person gathering for a while. We're actually um, planning our, our first company offsite in the third week of October, where we're going to meet up in Barcelona. Um, so it's the first time that uh, a lot of us are going to catch up and, and meet together. So I'm really excited about meeting everyone, folks coming across from the US. And uh, so, yeah, it's going to be the first time that... We're going we're gonna to meet up. Finally, I was really interested to hear that Louis says that they've actually contributed some of their learning to a free online resource. If you're interested, you'll find some of it at language.work, which is where the organisation have shared some of the ways that they want to contribute to the way that this debate on flexible working is evolving. I've, I've given the link of that in the notes, but it's language.work. And Louis says his vision of it is that it's going to be like a Netflix on the future of work. So do take a look. 
now I'd put out a call saying that I wanted firms who were fully remote to get in touch. And then I suddenly tweaked. These were software companies that had got in touch that facilitated remote working. So I was thrilled to chat to Lisa next. Lisa's works at an organization at a charity that elected to go fully remote in the pandemic and didn't have a vested interest in it. Uh, So my name's Lisa Freshwater and I'm the Director of Organisational Effectiveness over at Blood Cancer UK. So we're a charity. We put money into research to find a cure to beat blood cancer. Prior to the pandemic, we were basically trialling out what we were calling agile working. And that was getting our workforce to work remotely. So we had kitted them all out with the kit in terms of laptops, um, phones. So when the pandemic hit, a flick of a switch, we were ready to go into remote working. And it's been successful for the past 18 months. And if anything, we've had some really positive um, outputs, if you like, in terms of our work processes and supporting people affected by blood cancer. Now, the charity did have an office and they'd made a decision about what they were planning to do with it. So our office was in Holborn and prior to the pandemic, we were selling it because we wanted a smaller um, footprint, if you like, in sort of central London. We currently occupy nine 9,000 square feet. So we wanted a lot smaller floor plate, um, a bit like a hub where people can touch base when they're meeting donors, supporters, and for people that are really struggling to work remotely because of shared houses and a space where teams could come together to collaborate. It was up for sale and pandemic hit and then we haven't quite sold it yet. So we had, prior to the pandemic, had, um, with help from Morgan Stanley, had negotiated um, leased laptops. So every member of staff, um, we gave a leased laptop. We also then set up our phone system because currently in the office, one of the things that was stopping us around hot desking were those fixed phones to desks. So we actually got a platform that we could use on the laptop called Phones, um, where we can take calls via the laptops. Um, We gave where we needed to the sort of mobile phones when we wanted people to be out and about and couldn't use their teams. Um, So that was the the extent to the sort of kit. So that's and we're using teams when we first got, I'd say, go back to when I joined about three and a half years ago and the new chief exec came, we were working um, with a culture or a group of people that were not in good places and spaces. They were doing really good work. Um, So we had to do a lot of work to build that culture. So for example, our Pulse survey back in um, 2000 and December 2018, only 41% of staff would recommend Blood Cancer UK as a good place to work. That is now 95%. Pre the pandemic, and we tested during the pandemic, and just recently September, um, and that has, yeah, remained at ninety three, ninety five percent. It's worth calling out that the organisation had a really holistic plan. It rebranded. It had a new CRM system. Spent a lot of time focusing on employee well being. So there was a comprehensive plan that brought about those changes. It's worth acknowledging that the time that Blood Cancer UK has been working remotely by choice, pretty much every other organisation has been working remotely by necessity. So what are they thinking about getting employees back together? So we're thinking about twice a year having a a sort of all 
all workforce sort of events, sort of away day. Things that I think didn't work remotely are things like away days, you know, those sort of team builds where you want to do sort of an activity. We've tried that. And I think the larger the group, it's a little bit difficult, you know, to read the room. But we've used the sort of action groups and technology to get around that. Last up, I had a conversation with Manchester-based Dan Sodegren. And Dan runs a company called Your Flock. Just heads up that Dan's on a slightly echoey Zoom link. Um, Well, my name is Dan Sodegren. I have the joy of uh, co-founding a company called Your Flock, the world's first way of looking at team engagement in a slightly different way. We base around values rather than these other things out there with psychometric tests and other things. So it's a team engagement platform. There's an interesting distinction that Dan makes. He feels that the attitudes that firms enter into their remote working, hybrid working experiment almost determine the results of them. If firms feel that they've been forced into this, it's likely to have a less preferable result than if they feel they've elected to do it always like to say that as your flock we were remote first rather than remote forced and a lot of companies of course have been remote forced this has happened to them yeah and because of that so the mindset is very different but if you came into this knowing that you'd be always going to be a remote workforce then of course the mindset's different and the people you employ are different and the values they have are different and the culture you create would be different and I think that's one of the biggest problems, for honest, Bruce, is that a lot of companies have had this forced upon them. And so they've reacted in a, in, in a, in a kind of, a, you know, gone into instant kind of panic mode sometimes. But a lot of companies like, I don't know, like Buffer and, and Canva and a lot of these other companies were remote first. And so because of that, they created cultures out that, that, that blended instantly into this. But even with the hybrid mode, it's about the mindset. And it's actually about the mindset of the managers and the leaders. And of course, that might be one of the hardest things to change. What's Dan's take on the attitude of the remote working purists who really strongly bang the drum for asynchronous work? Is he persuaded? But for clients that we talk to, um, they are looking at and they are finding that the thing that they find really challenging is this whole nature of being asynchronous, that they're not all working at the same times. You know, that they think they have to. And I think this is, again, is a mindset thing. It's not a technology thing. Like we've had Zoom, we've got Trello, we've got Google Docs. You know, we've got all these things that are out there. There's thousands of SaaS companies that will help you with your remote work potential problem or the opportunity. So we can't say it's a technological thing. It's literally a mindset. And if the mindset is a kind of closed and doesn't want transparency and doesn't want objective-based working and, and wants everyone to be nine to five, and, you know, and what's the office banter and, you know, the alpha male and all these things and the slightly less diverse uh, workforce, as some of your uh, findings from Australia pointed out, isn't there's direct correlation between uh, a non-diverse uh, board and their wish to get back to the office. Sometimes people want to get back to the office, sadly, for, for non-business reasons, which are could be potentially psychologically damaging for lots of other folk. Um, let's not kid ourselves. We've all had bad bosses and, you know, between 67 to 81% of people leave because of a bad boss or bad leadership. And I think a lot of team leaders have forgotten that they've got to bring the human back into human resources because they don't know the team well enough. And then they leave. And then they go, oh, well, I thought our team, I thought our company culture was great. Well, everyone thinks their company culture is great. It's often quite toxic, but you wouldn't know because you never ask. The policies of your flock about getting together face to face seem pretty consistent with what we've heard elsewhere. Canva, I think, are another really good example. You know, although they're worth four billion, you know, it's not for small companies, you know. And I think they're saying eight days a year in the in the company office, so to speak. That's all they're saying. And I think that'll be about the same for us. I think we'll all get together maybe once every couple of months. 
uh, we'll all get together and thing. But of course, for some people, we can't. So you know, for the guy, obviously in COVID time, for the, you know, the guys from Nigeria and Poland, you know, if they're on the red list, they can't anyway. Finally, to round up on this, Dan is a big advocate, and I've chatted to him online about remote working as a diversity and inclusion issue. And he sort of explains why he believes that here and gives some pointers about how we might rethink onboarding. Well, remote, remote work tends to lend itself to a more diverse and inclusive, just, just on a basic, let's say, disability, for example, getting rid of the commute allows more disabled people access to the office because the office is their home. So that's just a, a basic, really. And then there's a much deeper one, which is a cultural point. If you're wondering why you don't have very diverse workforce in your office, it might be because when people turn up, it's not very nice in your office if they are from a diverse background. Now, you might not see it, of course, because 90% of the people you work with are not diverse. So you won't even notice the, as they say, microaggressions and other bits. But you might not notice any of these things, and you wouldn't do but as soon as you get rid of that and it levels the playing field for everybody else, then the whole world changes. So that's why it's about diversity and inclusion. Diversity and inclusion lends itself to remote work because you get rid of so many of the barriers. Now, not all of them, of course. It's not going to you know, ignore our diversity. No, of course it doesn't. Yeah, But I bet it, it might be because someone who's normally diverse might not want to be in the office with a load of other people that are shouting and doing weird, you know, that is too much for them. Again, this is the point, isn't it? You, you can create your own office space and you create your own thing that you're safe and happy with. And of course, productivity starts going up. So not only is it diversity and inclusion important, you actually make more money. It's about 21% from Gallup polls and other things. But you know, it's not the fact that diversity and inclusion is the morally right thing to do. It's the business right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's, the, it's just, it makes more money. You, you know, women on the board are better businesses. Uh, they're, they're more resilient, you know, less fragile, all these different things. So it's not it's not coming from a um, you know a kind of a woke kind of position of diversity and inclusion. It's actually coming from a real profitability. You'll start finding that your company culture will be your secret source, and you will fail. Your businesses will fail because people won't want to work for you, whether you're in an office or not. By the way, because even if they don't meet you for a month, they will meet you at some point, and they'll know before they meet you if you if your company is not very nice, and they they'll have already made that decision. And that is why actually. Things like onboarding, and this is saying that companies do wrong lots and lots and lots, and your flock does help with this bit, but it's about value stuff. But onboarding and how we do that remotely is going to be the the killing thing. You know, the, the thing that will kill your employee brand for the future will be how you actually onboard the next generation of people working in your company. And that will be over the next six months. Because the next six months, people will leave companies they don't like, and they will go and work for companies that they do like. And they'll have the freedom to do that. And I don't know if that's happened this century. Not yet. Thank you to Camilla and Andrew and Lewis and Lisa and Dan. Appreciate all of them uh, joining. Uh, Along the way, Dan mentioned there some research that I've done about diversity and the return to work uh, policy. And I've put that in the show notes so you can see that. That was a case study that happened in Australia. Uh, But you you can see that that came from the newsletter. So another reason to sign up. Uh, appreciate you getting in touch. Always willing to to hear other people who've got different experiences. It's been quite nice to to get um, people sort of contacting me and telling me what their organisations are doing. In fact, I shared on today's newsletter, I shared something about one organisation that are experimenting with a Wednesday plus one approach. 
And uh, I, I kind of liked that. Wednesday, because they want everyone in the office on one day, plus one, because they want the office to, to feel like it's not a ghost town. So choose your day, but come in. Look, you know, uh, I think it's intriguing to watch what organisations are doing here. I've been Bruce Taisley. Always feel free to get in touch. I appreciate you listening. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 